This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music at our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to episode 32 of Misdirected Mark Plays. Tonight, we will discuss Cortex mods in this Cortex Primer. But first, I'm Jerry. My name is Phil. Oh, I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. Cool. Let's do a few announcements before we get into the main topic. So, if you are a fan of horror and coffee, mostly horror though, you might want to check out Coffee Flavored Horror, where Jerry and John talk about horror movies and, you know, getting to some jackassery along the way. Also, there is a game called You Never Told Me on itch.io by our queen, Senda. It is an epistolatory game. Can you pronounce it epistolatory? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Seems reasonable. Which is a letter writing game where you are an immortal. You walk into a museum and you find a letter written from another immortal to you and you decide to respond. It is a game for two players and you write letters back and forth. It's uh, free, I think, on itch.io. Pay what you want. So if you want to help play test this game and you are a fan of Senda and Pandas Talking Games and us over here, check it out. Those are our announcements. Let's get into our main segment where we're going to talk about Cortex Mods in the Garage. Access granted. Unlike uh, other episodes that we've done for this, there was no real great way to do like an intro thing. We're just going to talk about three different mods today. Probably. Just Mo- three. Mods are good. Mods are good. Mods are good. These mods are things that we utilize in our Children of the Shroud game, but we don't use them quite the way that they are presented. We have modified the mod, essentially. So I thought they'd be good for us to talk about. The three mods are... Action-based resolution, the Doom Pool, which really we're getting into Crisis Pools, which I, yeah, I should say that's not part of our Children's Shroud game. It's part of our Ox game. Sure. That's, that's why that one's in there. And the idea of stress and how it's, utili- how it's utilized and how we utilize it, because we do some things surrounding stress that are not quite the way that it's intended to be uh, used if you have the stress mod in there. So starting with the first one, we're going to hit action-based resolution. So action-based resolution is a rule that takes the rules for test and contest and smashes them together. Using this mod, anything a player character or GMC does is called an action. Now, if you want to carry out an action, you declare it, you gather up your pool, and you roll a dice. You've heard us talk about that all before. It's the same as if you were starting a contest. But instead of moving back and forth in escalation like a contest, the action is opposed by a reaction, which is either the target of the action rolling their own dice or a difficulty set by the GM rolling difficulty dice. If the reaction beats the action total, the action fails. All right. That is the actual rule for Mm action-based resolution, which we don't do at all. Right. We do none of this. Probably because I didn't remember how to do it. It, It's also, I actually don't like action-based resolution because it has the setter roll afterwards. Sure. It's flipped from what we normally do in the game. And that would change a lot of the game. It would give the defender way more opportunity to be successful than the attacker than the, than the person that is doing the thing because just the way that is ruled because we're, we're basically flicking it around so the person that rolls to react gets to do everything after the fact and the person that rolled first to, to like try to accomplish a thing doesn't get to add any more dice in it or anything like that they have to do it all beforehand yeah it seems counterintuitive the way it's written it's not the way that I would like to do it, which I'm glad we never actually used it. We just did it wrong the entire time. I mean, honestly, we did it wrong largely because it pretty much works like the wrong way in most games. 
Yes. Right. In most games, you roll to beat a target number, some difficulty, some DC or something like that. In this case, all we did was sub in the roll to set that difficulty. And then you guys take a run at that difficulty. Yeah. Largely, my guess is because I'm bad with rules that um i just did it the way Dude, i thought it i thought it should be rather than come on it's not just you everybody who listens to this game knows that i'm sitting here like essentially like rulesing the game as we're playing it. sure so I, like i was like it just doesn't seem right but i mean i've done this consistently wrong across oh yeah, a, across, sure. i mean ox does it this way um long live the queen does it this way like i just don't like that reverse like to me it's counterintuitive to the way it, it feels like it should be and I'm not digging on camera or anything. I just, this isn't my flavor. Like I like action-based resolution uh, version two. I, I think the big problem with it is that it requires the players to spend all their resources before they know if they succeeded or not. That's true. That's the, that's a big and, huge and problem with it. It's it, a lot of games have that problem where it's you roll. Okay. Now do you want to spend your advantage to see if you beat the number or not before I tell you what the number is or, and then you spend the advantage and it didn't, it didn't matter anyway, because you already beat the number, that sort of thing where, Man, if I would have spent that one plot point to add a couple of dice, or I would have actually succeeded. So reversing it puts the advocacy more in the hands of the of the players, mm-hmm. and I like that. I I will I will say that like in one of our more recent Children of the Shroud games, we started using Popcorn Initiative, which is not act also outside of action based resolution. Because action based resolution is like your typical we should have initiative and everybody's a turn in sure. in the round. It would be fine to me. I, I wouldn't mind playing that way, but I really like the popcorn initiative because there's some sort of strategy that goes along with that. And it lets everybody, and if the environment gets a turn, to get a turn. I think mm-hmm. that is just a way better way to go about it. Yeah. I mean, popcorn initiative goes to, I mean, it goes to the thing you like, which is interesting decisions, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it makes, during the fight, it makes an interesting decision of when to go, when to let the bad guy go. You know, do you chance it and try to all pile on before the bad guy goes because the bad guy could go twice in the next turn mm-hmm. and like it, all of those things. And actually, we tr- we used action based resolution in the chase scene with, with Samia and that actually screwed us up because we couldn't do things in the order that we wanted to. Yeah. And you can actually hear that. Like, yeah. And then one time I was like, I want to do this. I'm like, it's Bob's turn, though. Yeah. <laughs> it creates a lot of decision making, which difficult decisions is is one of the things that we thrive on. To, to me, it also creates teamwork. Yes. Because if I can choose who goes next, and then somebody can be like, I'm going to choose you next after that, then we can set up a thing and pay it off, right? Yes. Like, I'm going to use my action to create an advantage on the table of some sort using my magic. Off balance. Yep, off balance. Then somebody's going to slap that person harder, and then somebody's going to use all that just to attack them to a deal stress. Yeah. Sure. But in, in our wrong stress rules, which we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but doing it since the theme. The opposite way from the way the rule is written in the book was perfectly natural because of 40 years of games basically saying you set the difficulty and then you attack it. Not only that, <laughs> but tests and contests are the other way anyway. Yeah. Right? Like it's just, it's, it, it was so weird that I, when I finally realized that we were doing it wrong, that it was written the opposite way. I'm like, why did they do that? I still don't understand. I've been trying to figure it out for a while. I've been thinking about this and pondering it. Like, why did they write it that way? Well, and I guess that is the big question, right? Like, what's the design? What's the design thought behind that? What makes that particular configuration interesting? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I will say, if you decide to use the action-based resolution mod, I think you're perfectly fine just doing it the other way. Like, just have somebody set. If you're going to attack somebody, have them set, and then you can make your action after that. 
I'm going after this trait on the table. Well, cool, this person is attached to that trait so they can defend it, so let them set, and then you can attack it. Like, it seems fine to me. It also, th that way creates more success for the person that's make taking the action, which to me is more fun anyway, because I hate null results for the most part. Anybody else have any thoughts about action-based resolution? I like our version better. I mean, I yeah. like it. I mean, I like it in general because um, while I like the test and the uh, challenge, like, I don't know, it seems too, I don't know, locked in. Like, I like the flexibility of just kind of calling for stuff when it seems like it's time to roll for something. Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes I, and sometimes I like the contest, right? Some, when it, when it feels like a contest, we've used it. Yeah. You know, I'll be like, okay, this is a contest. Like, your legal challenge in aux yeah. like that's going to be a contest you know i strangely didn't include that one because we'd already talked about how we do that wrong because we just decided that we do it the way that we like it and we don't care what the rules say <laughs> i mean because the, the idea is like a test is an obstacle to be overcome a contest is something that the players want to do when something opposes them that's the actual definition in the rules we don't do that this is an aside one for us like we don't do that it's fine like it's never really caused a problem in the game to me so what does it matter? I think these are the problems with Cortex Prime for me is like there's too many ways to do a thing, like more than I am comfortable with options that all feel fine, but also potentially incorrect. Like there's no like the game doesn't have like a real game flow to it. Well, I mean, it's hard to have a game flow in your toolbox. Sure. You're just parts, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're a fully crafted game, a D&D, um, a dungeon world, whatever, right? You build that flow in because those things are those frameworks, right? Those, the procedure and, and mechanisms are like set up to go. But in Cortex, it's more like I have dumped a bunch of Legos on the table, build the thing you feel like, and now it has its own flow to it. But there's no like Cortex feel. Like every Savage Worlds game eventually played for a long enough time feels like a Savage Worlds game. Eventually, you wind up using all the same edges and all of a sudden you're like, well, that's pretty much Savage Worlds for you. But Cortex is like kind of like they're all kind of Cortex-y. Well, we still have tests and contests and plot points and and dice building and traits. Sure. But mods like start to overwrite things and like and, and knock other things out. And if you don't use this mod and you use that mod and then if you play any of it wrong, you've made a unique instance of Cortex, which plays like a unique instance of Cortex. Yeah, I, I played three of these games really extensively and they are ox children of the shroud and leverage and leverage is an older cortex game before sure. we even had this mm -hmm. maybe this is a discussion we should be having later but you know, we're doing it now so we're doing it now that's fine they all feel different because of how we implement tests and contests in different ways we have combat sequences in children of the shroud that means turn order matters a lot more like sure. who goes when and who gets to go, mm -hmm. who gets to take actions, because it's not considered necessarily an exchange. When we engage in a duel, that's an exchange because we're actually rolling back and forth. But if T just decides to swing at somebody with a sword, that person needs to at some point get a chance to swing back because mm -hmm. that's not what they get to do when they're rolling the dice. Right. Because the game is not set up to be one roll solves everything yeah. like Power by the Apocalypse does. So that makes more sense there. Now, when we play Ox, it's way different because the disasters that occur, those roles and failure states usually mean timers tick down and that's purposely designed and it's clever and I like it. Sure. And it also means like, I mean, like a typical role encompasses like sometimes hours. Sure. There's no turn order because 
we never get down to turns. Yeah, it's really like, what is somebody doing in this segment? Yeah. Because we play by segment. We really do play by segments for the most part. Yeah. People that's been listening understand it. People that aren't listening, it's sort of like the exploration phase of, a, of an old school role playing game. A Shadow Dark does this really well. Where it's like, this is a segment, a 10 minute segment. What are you doing in this 10 minute segment? Sure. Yeah. Right. Like uh, what exploration thingy are you doing in this 10 minute segment? Are you checking the door for traps? Are you checking these walls? Are you like reading this book to try to figure out some secrets about things? Like that's what we're talking about with our aux game is like, here's this hour segment. Alpha is working on the, this weird machine that the builders have built. Tam is like in there, like trying to decode some code to like learn how to read it and then figure out how to make it work. While Gree is like, how are me and Polly going to figure out how to get this, uh, this thing to biologically do what we want it to do so that we can create some spores to help, uh, shield the ship in some way. Like, and that takes all time. Yeah. And then when we roll once things happen. And then when we fail, time moves along. Cause that's the, the prime crux of that game is the timer. Like yes. our, our prime opposition is the timer for the most part. Yeah. Not everything has a timer, right? Like not everything. Um, but all the cool and dramatic moments pretty much have timers. Yeah. Because that is the primary opposition is time from whatever disaster is like befalling. Exactly. I think it's interesting how that action based resolution, just resolution mechanics and how like you take your turn, which is really what we're talking about is how you take a turn in that game. I have no idea how your long live the queen game works. Kind of like this game. Yeah. Uh, leverage plays a lot like ox. Like what are you doing to prep for the, the, um, right. the heist? Right. And then we go heist. So like you're going to try to get past this part. So that's a little bit more moment to moment, but yeah, it's the yeah. same, same deal for the most part. Let me, let me come at it from this uh, particular angle. What is the core loop of a Cortex Prime game? It's the core loop of whatever Cortex game we're talking right. about. So you've but got I, a toolkit. You're putting things together to make the thing yeah, that you want. I, when I was talking about that before, Bob, I wasn't talking about the core loop. I was talking about like, the, the primary feel of how no, the game No, functions. I get it. I'm just like, for, from another perspective, like also, like there is no core loop by default. Yeah, I mean, that's the Lego you, thing. You're basically creating your own core loop when you put everything together. But they don't even have solid what a... We have to eventually make up what a a turn order looks like and how that functions in different spaces. So, like, yeah. we're not even creating a core loop for the game. We're creating the actual, like, encounter design for, encounter mechanics for the game, too. Mm -hmm. The core, more core building block has to be designed by the people playing the game. And I don't know that that's very well explained in the book. It's why, like, the Cortex Prime book is not, should never be your first role-playing game. No. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Cortex Prime role-playing game is, like, a game for, like, seasoned role-players. Because you will subconsciously fill in all the parts that you need. Because that's what's happened. Like, yeah. there is a core loop in Ox. There's a, because there's a way now that I write and run adventures, like, for you guys to do things. There is a very distinct core loop in Long Live the Queen where from the time a mission ends not between missions but the start and end of a mission or i should say the end and end of a mission there are like specific things that we play out the first thing we do is we play a bunch of scenes that have nothing to do with spy stuff like it's like catching up on personal stuff and then there's a mission briefing then there's intelligence gathering then there is execution. Yeah, you created a you created a, a core loop of play. Exactly. Yeah. Like had to build that, right? Yeah. Had to build it and and we fell into it. Like initially it wasn't there. And then like in a mission or two, I was like, oh, I should put this in there, put that there. And then the next time I went to write one, I was like, oh, what did I do at the beginning of the last adventure? Where I looked at the top and I was like, oh, copy this stuff, paste it over. You do see where I'm saying though, like yeah. it's it's even deeper than that, where we have to decide. Oh, 
100 percent. yeah what an encounter looks like yeah like we don't even have like this game doesn't barely gives you that no and that's why the first couple episodes of ox kind of fumble around a bit because before we could even build a core loop of the game we had to figure out how any of this worked the whole thing for um was it the fire cane on kirsom was can we even play this does stopping a fire cane wind up being an interesting story? It is. Turns out it was. Yeah. 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 It turned out it was. But we didn't know that. Yeah. And it also helped you build, like, what does that look like? Like, well, I'll put a timer here and I'll put a bunch of obstacles that the people have to overcome while the timer is ticking down before it gets to zero because then bad things happen. Well, and we also built the genius test. Yep. There's the, two, that. the two-part genius test. Which is for us really to build new tech. Yes. I mean, yeah. that, that is, that's its primary function. Exactly. In the game. like. Part of like the, the more overarching procedural thing. Yeah. When you want to invent new tech, there are like five things that have to get done. Only two of them require roles mm-hmm. because it was like, well, if everybody had to do all five of these things, it would be a slog. Super boring. Yeah. Right. We developed the thing where it's like you pick one, I pick one, which gets to be fun because then you may pick like one you're really good at. And I may pick the one that I think is going to be more exciting in the story, which is yeah. almost always implement. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> Yeah. No, agree. You're going to have to roll to jump into the, you know, into the ocean with that device, like those kinds of things. But yeah, I think with Cortex, like really the interesting part of it is you build so much of the game and some of it you build subconsciously. Like you do. I, mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we it took us like probably two or three sessions before the ox encounter system got smoothed out. I will tell you after from this discussion. I will never build one subconsciously again Correct. because now I'm aware of yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the, I'm going to say this thing. Cortex is not my favorite game. It's probably my favorite game that's like these games. Uh, yeah. Some assembly required game. Some assembly required <laughs> and a game that has a pretty, a pretty potent meta currency. Uh, and yeah. ability to affect like traits, to build traits and things like that. It's probably my favorite game that, that functions this way. It's not very good at telling you that this is what you're supposed to be doing with it. I, oh, yeah. I wish there was a chapter in there that's like, here's how you build a game. Think about what your encounters are going to be structured like. Think about what your, your core loop of gameplay yeah. is going to be structured like. I wish that was in the book somewhere. There, there, there could exist a second Cortex book that was like, if this is the toolbox, this is the carpentry manual. Yeah. Like, go get the saw and the hammer, and this is how you put them to use. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of good tools in here. I yeah. really do. This, this conversation, I didn't even think about the encounter design thing until we started talking about core loops. I'm like, oh, that's what we had to build because we didn't know. And then yeah. we're pretty good about building core loops out of games because a lot of games don't do a good job of explaining core loops. Sure. Or don't have core loops that we want. I don't know. What's the core loop of Savage Worlds? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Jerry just shrugged well, it's at me. fast. It's uh, that's not serious. a core <laughs> It's fun. And that's and that's actually true. I mean it's it's it's, it's not actually those things. I like mean that. it might have been 20, like fifteen years ago. I it's, mean this thing is fifteen year old. Game. It's fun, but it's not it's fast, but it's not that's not the core there are so many things you can do with it. it like any game that's that's more of a cookie cutter game. You know, what's the core loop of GURPS? Yeah, I Correct. don't I don't know. Well, let me ask a better question. What's the core loop of Deadlands? Exactly. That's my point. What's the core loop of 50 Fathoms? Follow the breadcrumbs. Okay. Like, at least it's got it then, right? Yeah. Like, you follow a breadcrumb until you get to a plot point, then you engage the plot point so you can follow to, to another breadcrumb, right? Yeah. That's a core loop of play. Like, it's not, I sure. don't know, you can say it's not strong, but it's there. Sure. Later games come to mind, like, of course, Blades yeah, being, I mean, Blades Blades being like the in. most overt, like, yeah. this, like, not even hinting, like, 
this game is played in the following phases, which is great, mm-hmm. right? I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially when you look back at past games, like one of the weird, I don't want to say weird, but one of the things that isn't always clear, right, is what what is the actual core loop of this game. And if it's not there, like you said, very few games will actually tell you to go make one. Yeah. Because I also think the further you go back, the less that concept was understood. I agree. 100%. Yeah. I mean... In the beginning of the hobby, there's an implied core loop, and it's the same core loop that actually uh, your Dungeon World game used, right? You're in a town, you're in a dungeon, you take the treasure, go back to the town, you spend the treasure, you level up, you go back to the dungeon. Yep. And with the one... The one caveat of like you have to travel to the dungeon, correct? Because that was always dangerous, right? The the thing about the airy peaks is the airy peaks in a very amusing way commercializes. I did, I I did it on purpose, and I cut yeah. out the I cut out the travel to the dungeon part. Yeah, I mean, what you basically did was take the core loop of a standard Dungeons and Dragons game, merged it with uh, the gold rush of yeah, like, totally you, did right mm-hmm. because it it beca- and, and like you know the town foot is kind of a little deadwoodish. It is. Yeah, it did, it, it's commercialized Deadwood. Yeah, it, it's dangerous. It's got a whole bunch. It's got too many adventurers uh-huh. wandering around in it with too much money. Yep. And it attracts weird shit. Uh-huh. Yeah. And people. Which is great. Yeah. Don't and get me wrong. It's got plenty of great. places to spend your cash. Or lose it, like, yeah, you know, yeah. on the riverboat. But yeah, like, there's a core loop there. It, it, Vampire whores. This is beyond, like, there's no mod for core looping in, in Cortex, and there shouldn't be a mod, because mm-hmm. you just to build that yourself. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I do think you're right that there's another book that's like, hey, here's a bunch of Cortex rules. Here's how you build a Cortex game. Now, I will say that those three example games yeah. are all good versions of how to do that, but yeah. they don't tell you how they, no, they don't I mean, exactly tell you how they did it. No, I mean, for the ones I've run, like some of it's been intentional. Some of it's just been accidental. It's just, I guess the good part is I'm a creature of habit, mm-hmm. right? So I like patterns and I like habits. So once something starts working, I'm like, well, let's just kind of keep doing that. Yeah, right. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. All right, uh, let's move on to the next one because we should probably. That was like, very insightful, yeah. by the way. I mean, you guys, you guys brought it out, so I just thought it'd be interesting. Bob really did it. He's like, Core Loop. I'm like, no encounter. Like, what does the encounter look like? Anyways, the Doom Pool. Now, I want to talk about the Doom Pool because I want to talk about Crisis Pools because we use Crisis Pools in our Ox game. Yes. Sort of. And not kind Doom, of and not, not Doom Pools. Not Doom Pools. So the Doom Pool is a mod that serves as a combination of ambient threat level, GM resource, and pacing mechanic. I actually think the Doom Pool is overblown and not as well as implemented as I want it to be, but also still kind of cool. Sure. It's sometimes called the Trouble Pool, the Danger Pool, or some other thematic time pool. When the GM has a Doom Pool, they don't get a bank of plot points, so Phil would not get any plot points. Players earn and spend their plot points directly into and out of a central pile, and the GM spends dice out of the Doom Pool instead of using their own plot points. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's that's the Doom Pool. And at the beginning of each session, the GM starts with a Doom Pool of at least D6, D6. If a session is of global or cosmic scale, the pool may start with three or four dice. And if the session is a major breakpoint in the campaign, the size of these starting dice might be eight or ten. When it comes to like testing against the the difficulty of a situation, you roll against the Doom Pool. Like that the is whole pool? The whole pool. Oof. It's terrible. <laughs> like... Man, that's I always thought that was brutal when I would run sessions of Marvel heroic role playing. Sure, but in Marvel, don't you have like a pretty good, like pretty good um, chunk of dice? Sure, but you still only get to two. Yeah, right. I mean, like, the same thing with the Doom Pool. You only get two, but and they do start at D six D six, so it's, it's not terrible, right? Like, yeah. you succeed more often early on, so you start rolling ones and building up that Doom Pool because that's what happens is you start adding dice into the Doom Pool or pumping up dice in the Doom Pool when ones get rolled. So I don't have to read that part now because we just talked about it, right? 
beyond that, like the, the Doom Pool does all the things that you can do with a plot point. So you're a plot point primer for what GMs can do. That's sure. what Doom Pool does. Yep. Let's talk about the Crisis Pool now. Mm-hmm. So with this mod, the Doom Pool mechanic represents multiple localized problems. So each of these smaller problems has its own pool of dice and spends dice just like a Doom Pool would. We don't do that. I just like assigning problem multiple dice. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. But only for things that the problem might be able to influence. These are often called crisis pools to distinguish them from the larger session-wide doom pool. You can build a crisis pool out of doom pool dice. You'll be like, I'm going to take these doom pool dice and make a crisis pool. So now you have to deal with the doom pool or the crisis pool. Yes. In our game, what basically happens is I will tell you something like, oh, this uh, gigafauna is represented by 3D10. Yeah. When it rolls, it rolls 3D10. Mm-hmm. And you may take dice out. Like, yeah. that's the part I like is... You can begin to overcome the problem by making your rolls and using your um, effect die to lower or knock out dice, because I think that's fun. I agree. Yep. I think the best implementation of this that we've seen so far in our game was that time when you did the second fire cane, the the planet-wide fire cane, where you had multiple crisis pools or crisis mobs. I think we call them crisis mobs. Crisis mobs, yeah. It's basically a pure. It looked like a pyramid. It scheme. was a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's, in other words, the higher, like the things that were on the bottom, were the real problems that were going to affect everything on the planet and destroy the planet eventually. But everything on the top was funneling down into the stuff at the bottom. So like a reverse pyramid scheme, because the stuff on the bottom of the pyramid usually funnels into the top. In this case, it was the top and funneling into the bottom. Right. Sure. If we attack those bottom areas of traits, Phil would be able to pick up all the dice from the stuff above it. Yeah. yeah, and that was a problem for us. Like we couldn't, yep. like we'd be rolling against like six and seven yeah. dice. We had to start at the top and work our way down and whittle them away. And there's timers going on because the timer is an important part of that game, right? And the reason, like just the just so the people understand how it was working, there was a problem that was this influx of gravitons that were that was pouring into the ocean that was causing tidal waves and tectonic instabilities. They can't listen to this one, correct? <laughs> and so. The result of those things, which was geological instabilities and a buildup towards a basically mega fire cane, was all being caused by this influx of gravitons. And so you could either, you could just band-aid the wound, but it got worse and worse as the timer got down because those gravitons were still pouring in. Or you could cut off the gravitons and basically keep everything simmering until you could handle it. Yeah. So it gave you guys like a choice of like, which problems are you going to tackle? Oh, because the gravitons were like hard to deal with and they were kind of dangerous where some of the other things were a little more straightforward because you guys had dealt with them before, like calming a volcano, handling a tsunami. I love that these yeah, are they're like, all routine, routine, <laughs> they were, routine they were, things and ox. They were routine for us after 20 sessions. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Spend space time. So let me ask a question about this then. So sure. we didn't use crisis pools or doom pool for this. What would happen if we did? Like, how do you think that would change the gameplay? Although, it's a tough question probably because a lot of us haven't played with a Doom Pool before. Like, I think, I don't know if anybody else has played with a Doom Pool aside from me. No, because you're, I mean, because you played it in Marvel. Yeah, right? That's yeah the, I played like around like six sessions of Marvel, so I remember. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember, like, when things go wrong, right? Like, I get dice from you guys, like, if I buy ones. Yeah, there are dice that go into the Doom Pool. Yeah. So, like, every, yeah. like every time we roll ones, like, you can basically buy them for dice in the doom pool, which then makes the doom pool more potent, which means you could, you could still set up traits on the table. Sure. Like you could still, 
Jerry's blowing up the, the podcast <laughs> with this film, which is fine. That's a very uh, Chris season one. Yeah, I know, That's right? That's a very Chris season one kind season of thing. Season thing. Yeah. I, you know what? I, here, I'll, I'll hypothesize because I think the Doom Pool, and it actually works fairly close to the Doom suit in Marvel Saga, with the idea that as the players do cool things and start racking up ones and you start transferring them into your pool and building your pool up, that you get to then have like the strikes back part. Yeah. Right? Where you get to come back. And I don't know in Ox if that would have been as much fun. Like you guys are doing super genius, super genius things. And then it's like, boom, the fire cane like rages and wipes out something. It would have been very dramatic. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it would have created different kinds of tension in the game. Oh, definitely. hundred percent. It would have caused different kinds of tension. I, I think the thing that, that would drive me crazy about it as, as a game is that uh, I think it's not exactly easy to attack the doom pool outright. I don't think you can go after it. And if you get two D12s in your Doom Pool, there's a rule that you can just end the scene in your favor. Yes. Which drives me crazy. I wish that wasn't a thing. Well, I mean, and that would be like, well, the fire cane rolls over the city and everything's burnt. Yeah, because that becomes the timer then. And I don't like, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I think the way we played it out works a little better. Is like, you have the countdown timer. Like, hey, you have, you have eight turns until the fire cane makes landfall. Get mm-hmm. geniusing. And then you guys do stuff. And because our things are like kind of crisis mobs, you wear it down, wear it down. So even if the timer runs out, but the fire cane hits and it's a D6 fire cane, you know, when you roll for the city to see if it's okay, Mm -hmm. like it's probably going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like it's probably going to beat that six. It increases the the likelihood that it's going to be okay at that point. You know what I will say that I think would be kind of interesting? Hmm. If there was like a modified doom pool that was sitting next to like you during these. And whenever we rolled ones, you could put dice into that doom pool. Instead, like you could buy our things to put dice into that doom pool. And then if you ever wanted to, when we go after a thing, you could pull another die out of there. Sure. That'd be interesting. Add to the, add to the, the crisis mob yeah. for that one roll. And that goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. just be like, oh, I'm just going to make that, this that, a little harder. That might be interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like the mana dice. It is like the mana dice. I, I really like the mana dice well, mechanic. I designed it, yeah. so I'm, I'm biased. I'm, I'm 100% No, I biased. mean, look, when in that fight with Jenna, right, like it was nice to be able to look and be like, hmm, my pool's looking a little anemic. Time to add a little magic and a mana die in here to spice up this roll. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or especially, I think one of you guys in one of those um, volleys had set pretty high, and I'm, I was just kind of looking at my numbers, and I was like, oh, I should pull my D10 mana die into this because this is probably a good time yeah. to see if I can't help close this up. Yeah, absolutely. I find some of these thought exercises to be interesting like that. Like, sure. How do you think it would affect the game? Would yeah. it be better? Would it be different? How would it change it? I, I can tell you there, there's at least a couple of scenes where if we had been using a Doom Pool, things would have got very interesting. Like the day that Jerry rolled the... The four ones? The four ones. Yeah. <laughs> that Doom Pool would have been like, ba-boom. <laughs> I have a preference for gameplay as far as like, I like when there's a timer that Phil is set, whether he is like gauged it right or not after like five sessions or six sessions, he started gauging them properly. Like he's like, Oh, I get how these work now. Yeah. Cause then it turns it into a game, right? The doom pool means that if a game master wanted to, I'm not, I'm not going to, Phil would never do this, but a game master, if they wanted to, if Jerry did something like that, rolled four ones instantly bumps a D six to like a D 12. Then we only need like four or five more ones for that, that scene to be over for us in the negative. So it actually disincentivizes us to roll larger dice pools because we don't want to roll as many ones. 
that's a gameplay thought to think about when designing or deciding what you're going to do. Like the Doom Pool, there's a play against the Doom Pool that you have to engage in when you are playing with a Doom Pool as a player. Like mm-hmm. you have to think about like, I don't want to give any more ones because the game master looks like they're angling to end the scene for some reason. Sure. Yeah, the decision making changes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's that too, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that gameplay. It's oh. not for me. Like that's not what I want because I like the timer because the timer creates tension. If we mess up, then then we just ran out of time. For Ox, I think it's great. If you are playing a superhero game, that idea of the bad guy pool building up because of the kind of ebb and flow of superhero fights, mm-hmm. like that can be fun. Yeah, I'd like to see it so that the Doom pool just can't take you out with two twelves. So I also think that's. that's fine. I just I hate. Yeah, that I mean, rule. there's no reason why you can't just be like, yeah, we're not going to use that part. And you could just change it to like if if these are big ones because like. What if it's like a major event? Like you're already starting with two D ten. Like what are you doing? Like I mean, six one six universe is gone. Two D twelve, you're out. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> incursion Oops. over. You're not wrong. Reed, you were supposed <laughs> to save us. Yep. No. Nope. I, I, I got Reed roll four ones. Incursion over. Could, feel free to move it to like three or four D twelves to like end the scene because that feels like it's like oh yeah then then you can actually play against it a little bit better. But I, like I said, I don't know any way to attack the Doom Pool. I don't know that there's a way to go after the Doom. Pool. I think what'd be cool is a variable threshold being like. The higher the stakes, the more twelves you got to put yeah. in there. Yeah, sure, sure. Right? I'm so, into that. So if we're like trying to thwart a bank robbery, two d twelve bank robbers get away. Or the scorpion gets away with his bags of money. There you go. But uh, the six one six and the seven one six universes are about to have an incursion. We're talking five d twelve. Yeah, five d twelve. So does the doom pool not allow you to buy it back down again if you if if the GM rolls ones or if you roll a spectacular success? Pretty sure it doesn't. Okay. Pretty sure that's not a thing. Doom. I'm going to Google it. I, I mean, I've read through these and I didn't notice that in there. And then sure. I don't remember that being a thing in the Marvel role-playing game either. It's like, you just can't go after the Doom pool. It's just there. I mean, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure on the internet that's listening to this. In, yeah. the, in the saga game, it's actually quite fun. Every time you play a card with the Doom suit, you just hand it to the GM. Oh, yeah. then they have it, it to play it later. They put it in their yeah. hand. I remember that rule from saga. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's like, well, it's like, if from, you're holding it, the you're Dragonlance like, 5th Age game, sorry. You're like, do I want to play this Doom 10 and like take this guy out, but also have to give the Doom 10 to the GM yep. who's going to use it on someone else? Uh-huh. Especially since the Doom suit was the only one that had 10s, I believe, or one of them. The Doom suit had a card that was higher than all the other cards Probably. in the deck. Yeah. So that sounds right. It was the only way to get those. Yeah. That, yeah. There's, your, there's your difficult decisions. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I like it. That's yeah, good stuff. It, it, it's pretty cool. All right. Let's talk about stress now, because this is the other thing that we don't do right in our children's <laughs> game. We do it fine. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with what we do, but we, we don't adhere to the exact rule, right? <laughs> we don't do it raw. Yeah, we definitely don't do it as rules as written. So with this mod, instead of using complications to track injury, damage, and other negative personal effects on your character, you implement a distinct trait called stress. Complications can still be in play, but they re- represent external hindrances, obstacles, and other problems that aren't direct injury or negative personal conditions like exhaustion or pain. So if you have stress, this is what happened with that thing where I was like, I attack. And you're like, that doesn't sound like an attack when I totally was attacking, but just it was creating a trait. Yeah. That's what stress does. It's supposed to replace all of that other stuff. We don't do that the way that it's written, which I don't care because I love being able to put traits on the table, especially on people. I love traits on the table. Yeah. Like all that knocked off balance stuff. That's supposed to be stress. Sure. That we put on Jenna. That's supposed to be stress. Yeah. According to the rules. So we don't play it that way. So everybody out there, when you're listening to that, we don't play it that way. That's not the, ru- the, the, the rules as written way. You can do it the way we did it, though. I think it's fun. Well, I think we allow for two things, right? So if you're going to put a trait on somebody, 
we let that go on the table as a trade. Yeah. And if you're just like, I'm going to hurt this person. Well, that's stress. Yeah. Like I, I, my intention is to, my intention is to take them out of the scene through some sort of damage, psychic, psychically, magically, physically, whatever. Yeah. I just want to be very clear. Like when we want to put a trade on somebody with, when you're using the stress mod, that's just stress. Yeah. Unless it's some external hindrance. Like I lock them in darkness. Yeah. And stress is like the thing. If you fail contest, take stress, mm-hmm. which can, kind of we do because when you, the duel is a form of contest. It is a form of contest. And you do take stress. Yep. With the option to put traits on people when you win. Yes. Spend plot points, to put traits. Once again, like, what do you think would happen to our children of struggling if we actually played it straight? I don't think it would be as nearly as dynamic. Yeah. I think, I mean, it would just, everything would just be like racking up stress. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what the mod's for. Yeah. Just racking up stress. I don't know. I like, would I mean, it be better. I don't know that it would be better for us. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I come from the school of fate. I love fucking things. On, I love things on the table. Sad things on index cards. Yes. I fucking love sad things on index cards. Right. I love, I love fucking around and just being like, you're mad because you lied to your mom. Normally that would just be stress. No, here, let me check this out. Since we're sure. playing children of the shroud. Right. And we wanted that to be a thing. Like those things would be on the table. We could say that our stress is physical stress only. Sure. And then anything mental is a trait. Sure. Right, and then we have to make the determination when a thing happens, sure. and then something like that could happen. But me, like, blasting somebody in the face to knock them off balance with magic would just be stress. Yeah. Which makes me sad. Yeah, I like, <laughs> I like the option, right? I, I like the option. I also, because I guess I like the narrative piece. Like, if it's just stress, it's stress. But if you say, like, I've frozen this ground and made it slippery, or this ice wall is toppling over, you know, like you're buried under. Like, I don't know. There's a narrative difference to it than just stress. Sure. I, I agree. And I think when they're on the table, again, from the school of fate, that narrative feeling like you, like people work them in. Let me throw this out there. Like, what if we just remove stress from our game? Um, we still need a way to like take people out. No, there's a way. If any time one of those traits gets knocked up over D12, they're taken out. I mean, essentially then, yeah, I guess it wouldn't actually make a huge deal because in essence, all of you basically have an invisible card on the table. That says like physical stress. Pretty much. That is just going up. Not just physical stress, but any stress. Cause our, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have an arcane shield too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which just basically buys you more points of stress. It does. It makes us sturdy. It's two tracks of stress. It, it makes us sturdy yeah. is what it does. But it's all, but the arcane shield is definitely for physical stress. For yeah. sure. Not mental. And it's a pacing thing, right? When your arcane shield pops, the stakes just changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. I don't know. Anybody else have anything to say about stress? I find that that particular discussion is fascinating because we have basically, by including stress plus all the other stuff, have made our characters very, very tough. We are tougher characters because of that mechanical choice. Definitely. Which is fine with me. I think you need to be in that game. Uh, I guess. I mean, we would just tune it differently, right? Well, because we're kids going up against larger than life problems. And in order to survive in a game with action, the kids have to be tough enough to risk doing it. I don't disagree with you. But we've fought one larger-than-life problem. We have fought an angel, and that's it, as far as larger-than-life problems. You don't think that Jenna was, was larger-than-life? No, she's a kid like us. No, she wasn't skilled. She's just a kid, just like us. Maybe a little bit more skilled than us, but like maybe one, a year older I, than us. I don't us. think we would have beat her one-on-one. But there were three of us. I know that. That's I will, what we, that, I, will that's ass- I, mean. I will assure you that, that Jenna was actually weaker than you guys. Well, there you go. Interesting. She, had only, uh, she only has a D10 stress. Which eventually is what you guys took out. Jenna just rolled like a monster. Yeah, and Samia, <laughs> Samia did everything she could to get away from us. We haven't, Correct. we haven't dealt with hardly any larger than life real problems that that would have affected us. That would have been needed for our stress levels. 
And we're very tough because of that. Phil is whistling off camera here. I know. It's coming. There should be. Like, we saw an angel to begin with. We're probably going to see something comparable later, right? Because that's how this goes. But we're also like 150 experience, we're like 100 experience points more than we were then. Mm-hmm. So, like, we should be able to deal with it. Yeah. People can hear that in the game, right? And just listen to the game. I hear what you're saying. I just don't think it's correct because of the fact that we haven't dealt with that many larger than life things that we couldn't handle, like that weren't within our skill set. I won't argue that. I think what made Jenna actually tough to fight is the dual system. Because the dual system funnels you guys basically like one at a time into that fight. Like some of you do some supporting stuff and things like that. But once you get into that duel, like one of you is fighting the other two of you are doing, and normally I just throw other shit on the table to keep the, no, the other two busy. That's not necessarily true because we wait till duel's over before we, the next person takes their action. Yeah. And they can just jump in. They could. In fact, we've done that. Oh, then I think maybe the other part of it is, is like, well, I don't know. The, I think that contest structure just gives like, it, well, it's certainly giving me a fighting chance. Like it helps. Jerry doesn't like it. I love it because I know exactly how it works. It feels to me like a duel. It feels like a duel, but mechanically it's beneficial to get into it because it's a way to generate a lot of mana really fast. Mm-hmm. It is. If you can go first, win on the third roll, you go first and like you kick it back to the other person, you get a mana die. You go, they, they roll, they roll higher. You go third, you get another mana die. You win, you get your mana die and effect die. You've just gotten three mana dies for that one exchange. Like yeah. it's like, okay, like I now have a bunch of power at my disposal to go whap somebody. <laughs> which yeah. there are a bunch of actions that you can take that don't get you a mana die, which is when you're not using your sword. Or your weapon, I should say. Do you have an axe? I find the stress thing to be interesting, how we use it, and how our shift has made us just a lot tougher as characters, which is fine. Like, I don't have a problem with it, but it's not Cortex standard. Sure. Yeah. I find it very interesting, but not surprising in the least, that we have drifted those rules. Yeah, me neither. Like, (laughs) we just play the game that we want to play. It's it's fine. All right, well, uh, anybody else have anything to say about stress? Anybody else want to bring anything else up before we move on? That's three, and that's, we're done. We're, we're pretty far in. We can, we can get on out of here now. Yeah, that's good. Bob, why don't you tell us about another uh, show on Misdirected Mark before we get out of here? You know, I think I would like to do that. We have a show called Bonus Experience, in which Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity, while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. Well, thank you for listening to us, Wax differently about a bunch of different mods in Cortex uh, Prime and, and the game itself. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon shots before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court. Ty Prunty, known as Lord Timemonger, Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time, Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus, Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress, JT Evans, the Queen's Librarian, Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth, Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies, John Carney, the Court Necromancer, Craig, the Lord of One Name, Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Eric Bontz, the Were-Gator, and Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Other patrons include Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Not That Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Huxley, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Becca-Sperm, Joseph Knoll, Carlos, Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. 
If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting the show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMP. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud, that includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, then you can just tell a friend about us. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, there are a variety of shows on our network. You can check out Panda's Talking Games with Phil and Senda, where they talk about all kinds of game stuff. The Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to talk about gaming topics to avoid being thrown in the stew. And Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk all about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so why not record it? If that's still not enough content for you, we have a number of other podcasts that we recommend and are friends with. The Tabletop Bellhop, your board game concierge. The Knights of the Night, an excellent AP podcast. Mastering Dungeons, where they talk all about D&D if you want some more D&D stuff. And How to RPG with Sean P. Kelly. You can catch that on YouTube. He's live on Saturday mornings. I'm often in the chat room there. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.